Hello and welcome to the program. I am Luke Hunt and we are in the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong and with me is Anne-Marie Evans who's one of the great doyens of Hong Kong radio. She works for Radio Television Hong Kong, more commonly known as RTHK. Anne-Marie, welcome to the program. Hello Luke. You've been here many years and done many a job and you're also here at probably one of the most extraordinary times in Hong Kong, given the way the protest movement has evolved over the years. How have you personally found it and professionally in terms of coverage? Well, on a personal level, of course, it's I've been here 26 years. So in fact, I've lived here for most of my adult life. And uh, so on a personal level, it's, you know, as it developed, uh, we weren't sure how it was going to go. We still don't know how it's going to go. And of course, it started off with these mass protests of a lot of Hong Kong civilians and um, and now has developed into something that's uh, much more protracted and also violent and also radical. So those have been the changes of the protest. Me personally, I am concerned that it's uh, going to develop into some sort of Northern Ireland uh, scenario where we're going to have a more radical element uh, that gets increasingly more violent if the government doesn't react, which it hasn't been doing well. We're starting to see that bomb disposal units were brought in over the weekend claiming that the IEDs had been left behind. That's an enormous step forward. It's kind of not surprising in many ways, given the, the nature of the protests, particularly over the last four months. We've seen the umbrella movement, we've seen the protests over education and going back over the years, uh, pro-democracy marches. Do you think Northern Ireland is a real prospect? Well, I think uh, at the moment, I mean, we, we have been an incredibly peaceful city in the sense that, I mean, one thing that I've always said abroad as a woman is that the fact that I, to go home, I walk through a deserted fish market right. and uh, there's nowhere else in the world. I walk hills late at night because I live rurally. Um, there's nowhere else in the world I would do that. So I think the security level in Hong Kong hasn't sort of changed exponentially. It's just when you have these protests going on that you've got the unpredictables. And of course, we've had one Indonesian journalist who's been blinded and any number of, well, hundreds of injuries. So you've got all of those unpredictable elements. In terms of ratcheting up, I think the challenge for journalists is to find out what's real and what's not. And all sides in this scenario are gaslighting right. journalists. So it's difficult to work. According to the police, uh, a few months ago, we had uh, this whole weapon stash that was supposed to be chemicals that could be used. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm waiting to see that court case come up. And I'm not saying that I doubt all police, but it was, it, it was such an escalation right. in an area of weaponry that we don't normally see in Hong Kong that uh, I was a bit sceptical, yes. And uh, also the fact that it was found with one of the pro-independence groups seemed a little bit convenient. Right. Uh, And of course, historically, the uh, Hong Kong police, going back to the great clean-up in the 1970s, has enjoyed a fantastic reputation for being clean, honest, citizenry-minded, and much of that has disappeared with these protests over their handling of it. And there are arguments that... um, the police have been infiltrated is the wrong word, but there are arguments that Beijing has trained up its own corps and these are the police officers that are being brought out. There's certainly a very strong pro-Beijing faction among demonstrators who simply weren't here before. How much of an impact is Beijing having, perhaps indirectly, in terms of the confrontations that are happening? Ever since the handover, I've felt that there is often, by Hong Kong legislators, Hong Kong powers that be, there is this tendency to half anticipate what Beijing may want 
and so there's always um, often there's been actions taken and second guessing uh, yes and I'm not sure it was always what Beijing wanted I personally um, mm -hmm. I'm not a complete China expert I'm more Hong Kong but I would definitely say that Beijing needs this currently like a hole in the head along with the trade war with the US right so I don't think that this while there have been of course rights that have been gradually eroded in terms of uh, democratization of Hong Kong and this sort of thing I don't think that Beijing wanted this extradition bill um, fiasco at all and, right. and the ramifications of it from the perspective of the police in 1966 67 already had to deal with major riots for a different reason here they used WPCs sometimes at the front and I think that would have been a good way to go here is to actually use women at the front it's a natural de-escalation people are a lot less likely to thump a woman to um, right. throw and and also I don't know whether that's a more maternal thing or what but it does work to take the fire out of a situation whereas there have been tactics used throughout this time with also quite um, intimidating outfits that the police are wearing that right from the outset my sense was uh, and also with 2014 that they were bringing out the riot police often when they weren't required now obviously we've got a situation now where the police do need to be protected because we're, we've got Molotov cocktails we've got all sorts of uh, bricks being thrown so we're now talking a different uh, scenario but at the outset I feel that there were ways in which that could have uh, didn't need to and so I often wondered whether the senior powers that been wanted to escalate at that point in terms of infiltration yeah the definite sense is that the, uh, the PAP the, the People's Armed Police from Guangdong and Shenzhen are involved because the tactics are different um, now I know that also the police have been trained up in Shenzhen as well I think I feel actually some uh, sympathy for the police in the sense that I think the middle ranks they have been known as Asia's finest for a reason we have um, a fantastic uh, crime rate here in terms of um, there are murders that go on but, but um, yeah, generally the crime rate is very very good here um, and so you've had years of this and years of the police being very very clean seen as unbribable this past few months plus also 2014 has, has ruined that reputation and I think there's a lot of police who are very angry with Carrie Lam for that reason um, they didn't join the police to do this and also feel that they're being sold down the river for what is a political problem Indeed. Has the mask ban worked? No. Um, and I'm not, I'm really, I either feel, I'm, I'm very split on that, whether that was complete ineptness by the government or whether right. that was uh, actual intent to stir things up because it was announced on a Friday afternoon ahead of a three-day weekend. Right. And um, so we all, you know... Uh, the protests it, were anticipated. Oh, total disbelief. I mean, the that evening on the Friday was the worst that, that we've seen. I mean, uh, right. the, the city got trashed. And, uh, and also all sorts of outbreaks. The fish market near where I go on the ferry, suddenly there was there was riot police there and there were outbreaks. What's also interesting is now this, um, which I need to look at more, is like when you go to North Point, of course, this is a communist area mm -hmm. um, and you have all of these and then you have another area that's, you know, Shanghai or Fujianese. And I'm finding that this uh, is current situation is bringing all of that out, uh, right. which is quite fascinating, actually. One, one thing I have noticed since the mask ban, which I'm not too sure whether or not it was intentional, but it does seem to have frightened a lot of the moderates off. Yes. A lot of people who may have protested are not. And then you're left with the hardcore who are often dressed in black, 
and wearing their black mask or the mask of anonymous could it be part of a strategy to divide and conquer and i'll just follow that up quickly what also concerns me is that this hardcore are a little more their profile is higher they are more visible in the streets i'm surprised almost shocked at how many of these people are kids yeah, well, um, we've had um, something like about 2,500 arrests so far over the past few months. A third of those are under 18 and some are as young as 12. And so there's the whole issue about in schools now, um, right. our children being radicalised. At the same time, you know, I, I make state, uh, you know, I am concerned, um, you know, what sort of influences. And also I remember my upbringing at school, I didn't have to worry about these sorts of things. At the same time, you know, when you have uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, doing things for the environment and sure. the global warming, then I think it's great that kids right. get influenced. So I'm, I'm a bit of a, a you know, slightly and, critical and kid, on that. And kids in Hong Kong have a right to be dismayed given yes. the trail of broken promises from Beijing since 1997 and the lack of respect for the basic law. And also the, the uh, pressure to do national education as well. There's been also the national anthem law that they've tried to implement. There's a lot of pressures coming uh, coming in. And also right from the start, you know, am I supposed to be moving towards China and learn Mandarin? There is a very much a, a conflict. I think what's shown over the past few months about is what really Hong Kong is in terms of that it is separate. And it is I don't Cantonese. Mean, yes. And I don't mean it's... And westernised. Yes. And it's its very own result of the eclectic history that it's had and it and partly the british colonial history is is what has created hong kong and it's also to be celebrated not to be killed off and if you're a parent in hong kong it might be politically incorrect to say this but the standards are much higher whether you're talking about education health policing people in hong kong can expect one of the, the longest lifespans on the planet and where you cross the border and it's not the same and the standards are much lower and you're not allowed to say that but these are some of the home truths and i think people here um they don't want to sacrifice those standards and it's not all about money. I think what is key with the Hong Kong situation over the past few months is it's very nuanced, it's very detailed and there's lots of things going on. So, you know, um, in the recent policy address, Carrie Lam went out for housing. Now, housing is one of the problems. That's not why people are marching, but it is a big problem. The fact that you've got young couples who really can't leave home, who can't get on the property ladder, it's absolutely impossible. They can't put the deposit together even. So you've got those kinds of issues with property being sky high. I think the situation with the mainland, of course, I mean, the, the border is so fluid. You've got people with relatives, you've got people living in old age homes right. over on the mainland. So, you know, there's a lot that goes on where there is no border at all, uh, particularly within Cantonese speaking areas. Having said that, we've had an immigration policy here that needs proper looking at the fact that you have 150 people coming in every day via China right. um, to, to come in. And that's just instigated by the mainland side and also tourism which has been uh, you know not controlled and it sounds uh, a daft thing to say because we're a free economy but people are fed up with having I mean I'm seeing and people rather guiltily say oh I went to the Buddha yesterday and they could actually walk around without teeming crowds. Well it is a crowded city it's one of the most densely populated places on on earth. What you're saying brings me to another point is that poverty in this town is extraordinary. I was reading a figure the other day where the number of cage homes, uh, coffin cubicles, uh, basically people who live in little cages in a little apartment that have been cordoned off to a bed. About 10 years ago, the number was 50,000. Today, it's 200,000. These people live on the streets. Uh, if you want an organisation or a network of people who are angry, 
and who know the streets, that's not a bad place to start. No, out of uh, approximately 7 million, we've got 1 million who are below the poverty line or on it and are Gini coefficient. The, the, we've got the biggest wealth gap in the world. We've got no pension, so you see a lot of elderly people pushing cardboard around and it's an embarrassment. And I think also considering we've got trillions in the fiscal reserve here and so right. there's you know we've had budgets where people are more concerned about low tax um, than actually we need finance ministers who are going to spend um, and not just worry about the reserve but actually spend out and we need to also without uh, as I say killing uh, the, the prospect of having a free economy we need to look at the people who need it most and increase that social welfare. And to bring the conversation back around on the streets this is all having an impact and on the streets now we're seeing uh, the harder core going back to the ban on the uh, wearing of masks in public and now the ban protests altogether which seems totally uh, impossible to apply how do you enforce that and now we have the, the hardcore protesters uh, their profile is high they're extremely visible and I'm wondering if all of this is part of a, a move to divide and conquer the, uh, a very old British tactic, but uh, in terms of cracking down on the movement, and is it possible? Totally. I think the government has always been in for the long game here. They want this to peter out. So part of the, I appreciate that they're worried about the violence that has generated from sometimes you'd have moderates walking during the day and then violence later on. But I think it's also an excuse. Uh, with the anti-mask law that came in over the past three weeks, Sunday this last one in TST or Chimsa Choi in Kowloon, if um, they'd allowed that, because that was actually done by a perfectly legitimate group here who asked the police if they could march, and I'm pretty sure if they'd allowed that as a legitimate march, you'd have had way more out and way more of the moderates, but, but people are frightened by the fact that it's unauthorised. It's not illegal, we have the right to march. Um, right. But it's whether you can then march on en masse and, and also ensure that the transport is, you know, moved around and all of this. And of course, it degenerated very fast on Sunday. But I think there is, yeah, this idea that uh, they get in tougher and tougher and more arrests. And of course, all of these young people will now have a record. I'm not sure that all of, because there's been so many mass arrests, whether all of those will stand up in court. But that's, there's some frighteners. And also, a couple of weeks ago, I actually went to a punk concert. Mm -hmm. And it was quite funny. We were there. There was about 150 of us brilliant night could have taken 250 and oh thank you so much for coming well the difficulties of me coming were getting into a taxi and stepping out of it but the right. thing was that you get these police messages saying you know stay at home or don't go out and all of this so people don't the best the most successful element of the economy at the moment is take out food ordering um, online yeah uh, whereas restaurants are collapsing, you've got a lot of small mum and pop businesses that are going out of business. Um, you've got a lot of your usual antique, you know, the galleries are really mm -hmm. doing badly because they've got the double whammy of not having tourists coming in and people just sitting at home. And my advice would be go out. I mean, be aware of where the protest is taking place if you don't want to be a part of that. But I don't think going to other areas is unsafe. The territories are long-suffering domestic helpers. Uh, being told by their employees uh, that uh, we'd like you home by three o'clock in the afternoon before the protests start, which is hardly a day off. No, well they've always, I mean they already work 11, 12 hour days a lot of the time and more, so that's yet another place where, um, you know, we've got here about 270,000 Filipino helpers, uh, many more Indonesians, and also they're coming under pressure because uh, people at home, their families are saying, oh, are you involved? And another thing is they're out on a Sunday, they don't have right. the, the choice of staying home, so they're 
where it could be in parks and things like that that are affected. Kowloon Mosque was hit by a water, yeah, water cannon yep. on, on Sunday. Now, I think that was an accident. But the, you, so you can um, inadvertently become involved. But I think, that I, as I say, I don't think that that should... Uh, that's just my personal view. I don't think sure. that should stop you going out. But yes, going back to your question, governments, definitely, that's my feel, is that it's on for the long game. I think Carrie Lam is under instructions from Beijing that you don't negotiate with protesters. She's hinting now at an inquiry into police brutality. Personally, I think it needs an inquiry all round. That's less divisive, but um, but she's kind of hinting at it. But what form that will take, I don't know. Have the chances of direct Beijing military intervention in Hong Kong, have they diminished? I've never believed that they were that high. If you look at uh, Tiananmen Square 1989, of course it went round the world, but we still talk about was it hundreds or was it thousands because nobody knows. It was 10,000. Yeah. I'm sure of that because the number was leaked by the British ambassador who got it from the state's council in Beijing. It was their own figure inside the Communist Party that it was 10,000. But the stories and the mythologies that have been created around Tiananmen, it's very difficult to know what to believe and what not to believe. Staying on that point, though, is the difference in the style of protests in that Tiananmen Square was in a square and a lot of protests across China were also in town squares. They were locked down for months and they were an easy target. Hong Kong is a lot different. Flash mobs, the authorities... Exactly, and people don't really know when it's going to happen or how. And one number I had put to me was that for Beijing to assert itself over Hong Kong in the way it might like to, it would have to send over 500,000 soldiers. And even Beijing can't afford that, not with its current force projection, the way it likes to deploy its troops. So in another sense, Carrie Lam has no choice but to be in it for the long haul. But also, I think, uh, for Beijing as an international... You know, Beijing cares about its international reputation. Right. It wants to be that international statesman. This is one of the biggest finance centres in the world. We're already under pressure on that front. I think a lot of international companies are looking at whether they should be in Singapore, even by reputation. It doesn't matter if anything's happening or not, but people are saying, mm-hmm. well, what are you doing at Hong Kong? It's almost seen now as a bad business decision. Right. So we've got all of that fallout. And um, also you've got any number of uh, mainlanders who are investing in property here. I'm not saying that Hong Kong has anywhere near the importance it might have had 20 years ago. I think Beijing can afford uh, in yep. a different way to, to uh, if it really had to but I don't know I don't think we're going to have the scenario of the tanks coming in and anyway the tanks are already here we've they got are. at least two military bases they are. so unlike the Daily Mail saying that it's going to call come in from Shenzhen which I think the Daily Mail is half hoping it will wow it's <laughs> I remember back in uh, 1997, there was an Australian television crew up on the border with Shenzhen, and their report was that the Chinese occupational forces are now arriving in Hong Kong, which of course was nonsense. They had every right to be here, and the troops here have every right to be here. But for them to impose a lockdown to weed out the uh, people that they don't like, I think it's almost impossible given the numbers that they have here and that 
like you're saying, it has to be a long-haul game. But I think it will be done more strategically in the sense that they're using things like Telegram. So right. the, the government was looking at, you know, oh, well, could we control the internet? Which was like, you know, you had lots of business leaders like, please don't, because one, the, the government is so old-fashioned, you know, like the other day, it was like Carrie Lamb talking to netizens on Facebook, right. you know, and you can see just from the language, it's like, this is not a regular thing for them. So it was like, please don't even no. talk about controlling the internet. And also the fact that we need to function as a as a financial city and uh, rule of law, all of the rest of it. But the police can follow all of these social media outlets or systems that the protesters are using. Right. They're also using tactics like dressing as protesters so they can infiltrate that way. Okay. So there'll be more of that. Also, what they'll do is, you know, we've got the district council elections coming up on November the 24th. You find ways in which, oh, you know, is this person indicating that they're pro-independence? Now, sometimes they're not. They're just saying that they would like to have the promises that were made under the joint declaration in terms of self-rule. Yeah, and also the fact that you can rely on fatigue. And I think that's what they're trying to do. But I don't think they're there yet. I see things like, oh... You know, because of this so-called two million, but that wasn't a real number. Um, because of, you know, but we definitely had one million the previous week. You know, there've been enormous demonstrations right at the beginning. But whatever the number, any number of hundreds of thousands <laughs> marched. You can see that from a drone. But mm-hmm. the thing is that they're now saying is, oh well, the silent majority didn't. So, and and that doesn't mean that people aren't empathetic. And I think what they're finding is that the older generation are very empathetic. You see this. I was in um, an area on the south of Hong Kong Island called Aberdeen the other day, and I watched as protesters defaced shop fronts. Right. And, and they put the umbrellas up. I was told repeatedly by older people there not to photograph. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and around me I looked, and there was just hundreds of shoppers with kids. Well, <laughs> these protesters basically vandalised shop fronts. So people aren't so concerned, you know, or they're supportive. You've hit on another point where the discomfort factor within the bureaucracy, the government, the authorities, it's quite obvious and the protesters seem to be far more in tune with public thinking, public sentiment at a level which the government can't even fathom, which is interesting given that the limited democracy that exists here is a factor of Hong Kong that they would like to tout but they seem a long way behind the protesters. I think we've um, still got uh, a young democracy here. Well, we haven't got a democracy. Of sorts. Yeah. We've got a system here where people haven't been tested in a democratic election way. You know, we've got chief executives who are selected, not elected, and it shows. Our current one, Carrie Lam, served any number of government departments. I'm sure she was very effective. That was her job for 36 years. She's not a politician. Mm. She's never answered directly to the public. Even when she was working in various departments, she had a reputation for not taking advice. Boy, are we seeing that now. Her policy address was surreal. It's like fiddling while Rome burns. She stood there with a policy address and said how she had fulfilled the 500 things that she set out to do and that she was going to now embark on 200 others. She kept wholly contentious issues such as the um, expansion of uh, Lantau reclamation, which Mm -hmm. is unpopular, but she insists on seeing that through. She is not a woman who's used to being contradicted, and that's really showing. And um, this is the problem, is you have this elitist, people who've 
had elite school education, probably come from fairly rich backgrounds and also then have worked their way through civil service and not been answerable to the public and that's what we're paying for. And they are absolutely business orientated and trying to second guess Beijing in terms of policy and where to go next. That's not to say that Carrie Lam can't learn. I mean there's one part of me that feels that it's gone on for so long now we probably need a fresh start with somebody like Michael Team, somebody right. who's moderate pro-government but has a good reputation and something like that, that that could take this forward now. I'm wondering if Carrie Lam is so hated that she's now becoming redundant. Um, but uh, it seems to be a tradition of Hong Kong chief executives. Yes. Yes, but uh, you know, when people were first saying that Carrie Lam ought to stand down, I was a bit concerned that Beijing may use it as an excuse to bring in somebody real and much tougher, or otherwise see why Leung back, which could be actually be more damaging. But at the moment, she seems to be here to stay. One thing that I did feel that was good was after the Kowloon Mosque was defaced and not well damaged by the blue water from the, these water cannon she was straight on that and she was around there the following days our south asian community here is old as hong kong and in fact in terms of hong kong colonial times many south asians have been here generations longer than chinese so i think that was very important i would applaud her for doing that very quickly and of course it's one of the problems with for the protesters and the authorities that hong kong being so densely populated that the numbers are automatically going to swell, particularly Nathan Road over on uh, TST. Just the sheer numbers and bystanders are going to add to the weight. I understand why they're choosing TST or Chim Sa Choi some of the time is because it's also a major tourist centre. So if you want mainland tourists to be able to video what's yep. going on while they go to their Gucci shops, then that's that's the ideal area. You also had major sort of South Asian areas like the famous Chunky yes. Manchus, and they're all handing out water there. So this is what I also mean about support. And, the and what we Yeah, and, and I mean, what we need to do is, I, what I've never quite understood over the past four months, where are the mediators? We need police mediators, right. we need government mediators, we need uh, protesters by being be water and being this fluid movement aren't easy for the government because there's no set leaders. One of the biggest issues for the authorities and people in Hong Kong in general is who do you negotiate with? The movement is, in public at least, it's leaderless. We know there are civil groups who have people in them who speak in sympathy of the protesters, but there's no one there to actually, who do you bargain with? Who do you talk to? How do you resolve this? if there's no one there to talk to. And even from the, um, the side of the authorities, apart from Carrie Lam, there seems to be no standout voice of reason who people can gravitate towards if they wanted an improved situation. Yeah, I think there's multiple problems with this leaderless movement. First of all, it's uh, particularly with wearing black and wearing masks, it's an excellent opportunity for other people to infiltrate. So there's been, you know, great suspicions about whether you've got people who are pro-Beijing, who are now instigating some of the violence, some of the vandalism. It's very difficult to tell, who knows? Right. Um, so there's that. There was also some key, uh, for me, the more passive uh, civil disturbance or civil disobedience end of the scale you had, which was quite courageous, but on the part of civil servants, you had a, a general strike here. And right. Civil servants don't do that. You've had flash mobs uh, of civil servants, tens of thousands of them, peaceful, 100,000. That, that's quite frightening for the government. You also had uh, lawyers 
doing silent mm. marches. Yes. Now this is powerful stuff, but it then gets completely wiped out in terms of the international media because they then decide to have a go at uh, the MTR on the same day, right. or they decide to disrupt uh, public transport. So the leaderless movement sometimes shoots itself in the foot because you've got any uh, multiple actions on the same day. Well, what are journalists going to go for? They're going to go for the Molotovs. Absolutely. I mean, it's sort of it's, uh, the blood in the street mentality but violence will always get the headline over lawyers uh, marching peacefully, I suppose. It's I think also where it also has been disappointing for me on a personal level mm-hmm. is that you've got Benny Tai, Professor Benny Tai, who was behind the 2014 Occupy. Right. Although I think his idea with the three men, the vicar and him, you know, was that they would just do it for 24 hours, then the students uh, with Joshua Wong kind of, and then it became this three-month thing, which yeah. was still immensely powerful. Now, he's saying he understands the violence. You've got a lot of the Penn Democrats here saying they understand the violence. I want the Democrats to say that the violence is wrong. And unfortunately, you've got a chief executive who's shown herself throughout over the past four to five months. You do something violent, Carrie Lam reacts. You have millions doing a peaceful march, she ignores. So she's actually educated this protest movement that the more can escalate, she will react to the violence. And that's very, very sad for Hong Kong. On a final note, given that we're chatting about the leaderless movement, how important is Joshua Wong? He's probably the highest profiled member of the pro-democracy movement. He's certainly become an international figure, I mean, and he's still well under 25, 22 or 23. Uh, how important a role will he play going forward? Joshua is 22. He's also got an international profile. And he's had a panorama program, I think, or a documentary right. certainly made about him. He was in US Congress the yeah, other week. He's written a book. He was in Germany. Um, I think as a young man, and, and he's very much, I mean, he walks the talk. There's no doubt about that. He's had several uh, stints in jail. But I also feel that he shouldn't be the only voice because he's one of many. Edward Lang is another one that um, he's actually was in prison on rioting mm-hmm. uh, charges from 2016. Now, a lot of the young people are gravitating towards him and see him as a bit of a hero. Um, Now, he's much more the pro-independence end of the scale. But, yeah, Joshua is, as I say, got the the profile. Uh, My concern is that he, he uses vocabulary like... China is the emperor or Xi Jinping is the emperor. Our biggest trade partner is mainland China. Mm -hmm. We get 70% of our water from mainland China. I think people have to also have the one country up there as much as they are the two systems. And I think Joshua can be a bit inflammatory. We have had some major injuries. I'm very shocked that nobody's died. I'm surprised rather than um, pleasantly surprised. There is the death of the uh, 15-year-old competitive swimmer, and she was a prominent protester, and she apparently drowned, which uh, I find amazing, and her body was found naked. Police said there was no suspicious circumstances, and her body was cremated immediately. It defies logic. Yes. No, I agree with you, but I don't see that a proper investigation needs to take place. But um, at this moment, it's not to say that I'm in denial about that. We've sure, also, we've sure. also had about saying, yeah. nine to 11 people that people claim you know, committed to suicide as a direct result, which I think is a highly dangerous thing to do. People commit suicide for multiple reasons. Yes. And if you want a few more young martyrs, to follow, then that's a great way to ensure that we'll have more deaths. So I'm, you know, yes, I, I feel that that's entirely irresponsible. Uh, in terms of this 15-year-old, yes, 
her death needs to be properly investigated. But I'm talking more on the streets that we haven't seen. In the 1967 riots, you had a journalist who was burnt in his car. We haven't seen that, and I think that we haven't seen that by pure chance. I think there right. will be accidents that happen. It won't be intent, necessarily. Although, the other day, an 18-year-old has been charged with attempted murder because he tried to cut the throat of a police, of a police officer, officer with a box, box cutter. Yeah. yeah, so we are getting to that stage. But if you look at Chile, Baghdad's a more extreme example. Beirut, yeah, over yeah. the weekend. Yeah, we've got multiple deaths there. I'm not saying we won't get there, unfortunately, but at the moment, we're not there in Hong Kong. People don't loot in Hong Kong, so you'll have shops defaced. You have, you, people don't loot. Right. Um, so, you know, there's, so there's some, I mean, at the beginning it was quite charming. I mean, people would go and have a demo and then go and brush yeah. up afterwards and mop the streets, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, do you mind if we do this, please? Yes. We can't Sorry about the inconvenience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This sort of thing, I mean, it's, it's hardened now. How it goes forward, I think we are... And that's my final question. Yes. How, how do you think it will go? Depressingly, I think Hong Kong has changed forever. I think the, the fundamentals, I think Hong Kongers are still the same as they ever were. But I think to come away from the, there's so much hate generated, the amount of friendships that have come asunder, the amount of parents who've chucked their kids out, you've got a lot of homeless student demonstrators now, that takes an awful lot of repairing. The hate of the police, they are people who ensure that we're safe on the streets, that will need years of rehabilitation. So those are my major concerns. Also, you've got uh, young people who have um, almost felt that they've got an entitled right to go and vandalise and chuck Molotovs. That testosterone level, to mm-hmm. come back off that. Now, I mean, plenty of people did it in 1968. I'm not saying that you don't go off and become an accountant after all, but there is a lot of young people, that gets quite sexy, that love of a bit of drama. And I'm not saying... Uh, sure, again, it creates a culture. Yeah, I'm not saying hard... by a long way that that's the only reason that they're doing my goodness, but that level of excitement to, to then try and pull back from that, yeah. we've okay. So we've got some problems going ahead, and unfortunately I don't think that this will, particularly with a weak government, I don't think this will be solved very quickly. I wonder if next month with the district council elections, whether that will help. And on that note, Anne-Marie Evans, thank you very much. Thank you.